Good morning to you, brothers and sisters. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. I'm going to take you from the heights of glory and praise of the Lord and his provision for us, and I'm going to drop down now, and you're going to go with me into the events of this last week. Last week, on Tuesday, May 24th, an evil 18-year-old man entered Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, and killed 19 children, fourth graders they were, and two teachers. What do you say to this horror? To the innocents lost? To the families? To a grieving community in Uvalde, Texas? How is anyone supposed to respond to such evil in our world? Conservatives, they start talking about mental health problems in our nation. Liberals start talking about gun control. But friends, neither gun control nor mental health control will change the human heart. You see, guns don't kill people. Evil people kill people. And evil governments kill the most people. How is it that none of our politicians understand that you can't legislate against evil enough? Criminals don't care about your legislation. They walk right past your legislation to commit their evil. That's the point. That's why they're criminals. And worse still, how many people that are actually making our laws are in fact criminals themselves? And so what do you say in the face of this kind of trauma in Uvalde, Texas? What conversation helps a nation grieve the loss in the face of such evil? Because in Uvalde, Texas, at Robb Elementary, it seems that over the course of this past week, particularly on May 24th, that evil has won the day. And people start asking very, very important questions. Where is God in all of this? Why didn't God stop this? Why did God allow such evil to happen? People will say, God, if he exists, must be loving and all-powerful to be God. But at Robb Elementary, God showed neither his love nor his power, and therefore God is not a God at all. In fact, there is no God, people would say. Brothers and sisters, if you don't have these thoughts over the course of the events of this last week, understand that many in our world did have these thoughts. Personally, I'm always frustrated by these charges against the character of God. Because the people that would charge God with wrong in this instance in Uvalde, Texas, are usually always people who love to highlight the free will of man. They love to talk about man's free will until man's free will takes the lives of 19 innocent fourth graders. And then presto, their reasoning about man's free will changes. And now all of a sudden they want God's sovereign intervention to stop man's free will. At the point of maximum evil, the free will of man advocates want God to be sovereign over the evils of men. Now, can you feel the hypocrisy and the tension in that? Can you feel the hypocrisy in the mind of the free will advocate that wants God to act when they want him to act, but not when they want to act? These folks who would think this need to be asked the question, what's it going to be? Because you can't have it both ways. Either God is already totally in charge, totally in control, absolutely sovereign, and able, he is, to use man's evil free will 
choices to accomplish his plans or the other side, God is not sovereign. He's unable to stop evil. And he's unable to overcome the evil free will choices of men. You see, it's either one or it's the other. He's either totally in charge or he's not in charge at all. Brothers and sisters, hope, peace, love, joy, and comfort are only found in this. The God represented in the Bibles in your hands is totally sovereign. He's totally in control of all things at all times. Evil has not overpowered God. Not even this last week, not even a shred. To the contrary, God uses the evil free will choices of men to accomplish all of his purposes. What is required for this to happen? Something that people don't want to give. Time. Time. You have no idea how this tragedy plays out in time. God does. You have no idea how God will choose to comfort and heal broken hearts. You weren't there. You're not walking this week with those persons individually. You have no idea. You have no idea how God will cause his glory to be made known, his salvation and comfort to be applied, and his power to strengthen his believers in his churches in the, in the world and in Uvalde, Texas. You have no idea. You cannot, in your finite, little human mind, comprehend the totality of the sovereignty of God to execute all that he wants through evil to bring about good. And that's a good thing for your mind to rest in because you can't understand all the evil that goes on out there and how to reconcile that with a God who is perfect and holy and loving and just. The school shooter at Robb Elementary was shot dead. I praise God for that. Justice found its way to him. Did ultimate justice find its way to him? No, no. There is a day appointed for him to face ultimate justice. And where will this 18-year-old evil man spend eternity for his choices? He will be punished and sent to hell forever to be with his father, the devil. That's exactly what's going to happen to this young man. Friends, the only way past the anger and the rage, the bitterness, the trauma, and the damage of the evil of events like Rob Elementary School that we saw there this past week is to understand that God is totally in charge. He will perfectly issue justice on his terms, in his timing. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Rather, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Harold Honer says, the present battle then is played out in the heavenlies and on earth between those who align themselves with the devil and his angelic leaders and those who align themselves with Christ and his angels. James Montgomery Boyce tells us about our text today in Ephesians 6.10, saying that Paul warns Christians not merely that they may encounter evil people, but rather that they are in a struggle against the evil behind such evil people. You're at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul moves to his final theme in Ephesians, a theme of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a stark contrast in this text as Paul is finishing and concluding his thoughts. You remember in chapters 4 and 5, we've been on a worthy walk, a walk worthy of the calling into which we've been called. We've been walking in love. We've been walking wisely, walking as children of light, 
walking spirit-filled lives, redeeming relationships in chapters 4, 5, and early into chapter 6. But to close his letter, Paul speaks about the eternally broken relationship that God and all of God's elect, adopted, redeemed, saved children have with Satan and his demons. A relationship that is a raging spiritual battle. Let's read about this spiritual warfare and our standing struggle against Satan now from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, Finally, finally, Christian, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the wicked, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Commentator R. Kent Hughes says that these verses on spiritual warfare, that they are life-changing when they are truly believed. With this biblical worldview, he says, in our hearts about this spiritual warfare, we have the foundation for victorious spiritual warfare. On the way to understanding spiritual warfare, however, some people may get confused. James Boyce says, We may be puzzled by spiritual warfare, wondering why God permits Satan and his activities. To answer to that question, that charge that might be in someone's mind, I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. We'll look at verse 12 and following. Ezekiel 28. When you think about Satan... And when you think about spiritual warfare, I need you to ask yourself these questions. Is creation good? That's where I want you to go when you think about Satan and spiritual warfare, even the events of this last week in Uvalde. Is creation good? Is it good, right, and just to be a creator? Was it right and good that God created? Be very careful in your answer to these questions so that you personally don't become a hypocrite yourself. Many of you are creators yourselves. Some of you are business owners. Some of you might make products, fabrics. You might shine shoes. You might invent something really phenomenal. You're creators. Many of you are married. You have procreated. You have children. You chose to create. You did that. Either way, all of us here in this room are either creators or we're the direct result of parents who chose to create us. Brothers and sisters, creation is always good. Creation is always good. 
Think across the hallway for a moment. You got the pre-K, the little ones, three to five-year-olds running around over there. In the morning, they start off with the blocks on the floor, the Legos, right? We love the little kid that goes over and starts stacking those Legos one on top of the next, on top of the next, until he's got a tower. That's creation. We love that kid. Now, we're challenged by the little destroyer who comes along and smashes that Lego tower, and we wonder, where are his parents? Does anyone spank this child? Creation is good. And it is no surprise that our God is himself a creator. His creation is the outworking of his desire for his greatest glory, which is heaven forever with his elect, adopted, redeemed children of light. These are the ones whose names are found written in the Lamb's book of life. God's greatest glory is not in saving all men. I'll say that again just in case you missed it. God's greatest glory is not in saving all men. His greatest glory is in saving those whose names he wrote down in the Lamb's Book of Life before creation ever began. And so we know God created the world and all that it contains to achieve what he'd always desired, to have that relationship, the perfect relationship, his glory thought. He has a glory thought of people to be with forever in heaven, and he writes their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life, and then he jumps into the act of creation. And this is wise, good, just. It is for this reason we have Genesis 1-1 in our Bible, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's an afterthought that comes on the back end of a glory thought, which is our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We know on day six that God created people, Adam and Eve, in his image according to his likeness. What we don't always understand is that somewhere before Adam and Eve are created, God created angels. Angels are persons. They have an intellect, emotion, and will. They are free will persons, able to sin. However, no provision was made for them to ever be forgiven if they ever sin. Why? They're not made in God's image and likeness. That's why. They must live in perfection because any rebellion demands their immediate destruction, which is exactly what happened to Satan. You're in Ezekiel 28, verse 12, where the Lord through the prophet speaks to Satan, calling him the king of Tyre. The Lord has already addressed the human leadership of Tyre in chapter 28, verse 2. But at 28, verse 12, the Lord turns his attention to Satan, recalling his history from creation and explaining his present punishment to the earth and proclaiming his eternal destruction, saying in 28, verse 12 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28, 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, Satan, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. 
I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. It is the eyes, in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. What do you need to understand about this text? What do you need to understand here? You need to understand this. Satan is God's Satan. You need to understand that. God created Satan to be a free will and powerful being. However, Satan is not infinite. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. He's a creature. He's a creature who fell from grace. Satan and all his angelic hosts were created by God to serve God's perfect purposes in heaven forever. People charge God with, oh, well, you just make robots. Oh, did he? The charge, the, the, the robot charge is, is one where people look at that and they say it's not right and good if God doesn't give his creation free will to be able to make a choice. Well, he gave that free choice to Satan, didn't he? And all of a sudden, there's evil in the world as a result of that. Did God do something wrong? Go back to the question about creation. Is creation right or wrong? In making them, God knew exactly the free will choices that they would make in their rebellion. Is creation right or wrong? God knew that he would punish those who were unrighteous. So is creation right or wrong? Is creation of the angels right or wrong? Is creation of Satan right or wrong? This passage tells us that Satan was given great authority among all the created angels, and then he chose unrighteousness. He chose pride. He chose sin. He chose rebellion. There was no chance for forgiveness for this creature. And Satan received immediate destruction in chapter 28, verse 16. Failure is unforgivable because of the authority and power that was entrusted to this person, this being named Satan. He failed. He is the king of failures. He's the father of lies. He's full of pride and selfishness continually. But Satan was not alone in his failure. In Revelation 12, verse 9, as we read earlier, we read from the apostle, he says, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. His angels are those who followed him into the rebellion against God. They are described in Revelation 12, verse 4, where the apostle John says, And his tail, Satan's tail, swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So you must ask the question, was God wrong to create Satan and the angelic beings? Was God wrong? In asking you that question, I'm challenged as a pastor in this. I just made you the judge of God. Did you like that spot? Be very careful how you answer that. The answer is in your Bible. God has already judged his own behavior. And he's already said that this creation was perfect, right, and just. Should God not have made angels? Again, judge, answer the question. Was creation of them wrong? They have evil plans. They're behind school shootings. They induce men made in God's image and likeness to kill one another. Is God evil because he made Satan? Answer. 
not a chance. God is not the source of evil, and he was not wrong in making angels, persons with the ability to choose to rebel against his perfect law. It would have been wrong for God to make angels and to make human beings if he didn't establish what righteousness was and left us to toil around. But he established righteousness, gave his law, gave his instruction, and what do you have with Satan and all of us? A bunch of rebels to God's will. Evil, strictly defined, is just this. Evil, strictly defined, is opposition to God, rebellion, and disobedience to God's word. Creating free will beings is no problem for God. It's no problem at all for him to make free will beings because God is so in control of all things that even when free will beings rebel against him, they can never stop God from doing good and right and achieving the glory that he always set out to get for himself. And if you want to look any place to see that, look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 6. You know that God sent Satan to investigate the strength of Job's faith. You know this, right? Where Satan did all manner of evil to Job, killing his servants and all of his children, stripping him of all earthly possessions, and then personally afflicting him with lesions on his body. Not one of these afflictions caused Job to sin and rebel against God, however. Our Lord Jesus Christ also was tempted and tested by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days when he was without food. Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth if he would just worship me. Jesus answered Satan in Matthew 4.10, saying to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Which was a swift reminder to Satan at that point in time. That's exactly why you fell from heaven. That's exactly your rebellion. That's exactly what you didn't do. And so we find that Satan is a great enemy. And we also find that Satan can be resisted. Satan is the captain of evil and the supreme leader of the spiritual warfare on earth and in heaven. And we can stand against him. We learned last week in studying Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, that spiritual warfare can only be fought in the strength of the Lord, and victory then is expected. Second, we learned spiritual victory requires knowing our enemy is Satan. Spiritual victory hinges on this knowledge. And you will remember that Jesus said in John 8, 44, Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie because he is the father of lies. And in our text today at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Paul shares two more tactical treasures that enhance the efforts of our spiritual struggle. It is in the text today that Paul imparts two more spiritual victory essentials which focus our work to win the spiritual war. So what two additional spiritual victory essentials as we work through this week's text, adding on to last week's, what two additional spiritual victory essentials enhance our efforts in the spiritual warfare that we face? If I give them to you, I'm going to number them along the lines of our outline from last week. So you're going to get points three and four today. Point number three, then, for your notes today, point number three is the size of our supernatural struggle. You need to know the size of our supernatural struggle. This is a tactical treasure to you, the size of our supernatural struggle. Fourth, then, you need to know the scope of our obedient stand. Another tactical treasure, another spiritual victory essential, is the scope 
of our obedient stand. The size of our supernatural struggle, point number three. The scope of our obedient stand, point number four. So then let's look at these spiritual victory essentials. Let's look then at the third spiritual victory essential in our text today. The size of our supernatural struggle. A story has been told of a mental hospital that many years ago devised an unusual test to determine their patient's worthiness to be fit to leave the hospital and go back into the world. They brought a candidate for release to a room where a water faucet was left on so that the sink overflowed and was pouring water all over the floor. Then they handed the patient a mop and told him to mop up the water. If the patient had enough sense to turn off the faucet before mopping up the water, he was ready to be released. But if, as in many cases, the patient started mopping up the water while the water was still flowing, they kept that patient for more treatment. Their test for sanity worthy of engagement in the world was, can you determine the enemy? Can you reason through to see the scope of the problem that exists? That's just the problem with mental hospitals. They're only going to engage people on the physical level. It's all that they can because it's all that they know. But as Christians, we must be concerned about our ability to detect enemies on the spiritual level. Beyond Satan, Paul increases our understanding of the enemies we face in spiritual warfare by saying in chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Struggle here is an interesting word. It's the Greek word pale. It means to wrestle, to struggle, to have conflict. With pale and struggle, Paul is mixing metaphors in this text. Clint Arnold says both images combine the expression, uh, the expressed notion of close, difficult, tiring hand-to-hand -hand combat when you're thinking about wrestling combined with warfare. These two things Paul mixes together, warfare and wrestling. And who are we then wrestling against? Well, at times you personally might feel as a parent that you're wrestling against your children. You might think that this spiritual wrestling is something that you have been made to engage in by God with your three-year-old or your 10-year-old or your 17-year-old. Children, you might feel that the spiritual warfare is with your parents. Paul, however, says definitively to you, no. No, that's not the case. Our spiritual struggle, our hand-to-hand -hand combat is absolutely negatively not against flesh and blood. Would you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? We'll look at verse 16. You are not struggling spiritually against your wife, your children, your boss, your mother-in-law. Vladimir Putin is not your biggest enemy. The gunman at Uvalde, Texas is not our main opponent. He's not our primary opposition. Commenting on this verse, John Stott positively says, Paul gives a full and frightening description in Ephesians 6.12 of the forces that are arrayed against us. There are four rankings of demonic activity around us that engage us in spiritual wrestling. His list begins with the arche and the exousia, the rulers and the authority. These two words are paired together frequently in the New Testament. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul discussed at chapter 1, verse 21, that our Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion. At chapter 3, verse 10, we're told that the church 
it makes known the manifold wisdom of God to the arche and the exousia, the rulers and the authorities who are in the heavenly places. Well, what do we read about the arche and the exousia in Colossians 1, verse 16? Paul says that by Jesus, verse 16, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Look at Colossians 2.9, where Paul says, For in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, verse 10, you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Turning your Bibles to Acts 26. Acts chapter 26. After the rulers and the authorities, or as the King James Version of the Bible says, principalities and powers. After these, Paul says, third, that we are spiritually wrestling against the world forces of this darkness. The world forces of this, of this darkness. These are, in the Greek, the cosmocraters. That's just a fun word to say, cosmocrater. It's a term that you should use the next time that you win at risk. You can say, get your name badge, I'm the cosmocrater. It's someone who is uh, trying to uh, aspire to world domination. Cosmo Crater was a term used by the Greeks to describe their so-called gods who rule the world, Helios and Zeus and Hermes. Fourth, then, and finally, Paul says that we wrestle against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Here we learn of their moral condition and their physical location. Morally, they are wicked, and they operate in heavenly places in as much as we've read also that they operate here on the earth. Harold Honer says the collection of Arche, Exousia, Cosmo Crater, and spiritual forces of wickedness indicate specific spiritual beings or armies rather than abstract spiritual forces. Which is to say that the struggle that we are engaged in is a personal struggle. This is a wrestling match with spiritual persons, not faceless forces. They know your name. They're coming after you as a person. It's important that we know their leader's name and that they rank themselves, as Pastor John MacArthur says. He says, all of these describe the different strata and rankings of those demons and evil supernatural empire in which they operate. Each seems to represent a particular category of demon activity and level of authority. He says that Satan's forces of darkness are highly organized and structured for the most destructive warfare possible. They are a great and ancient multitude and constitute a formidable and highly experienced supernatural enemy. James Boyce would have us know not one of us, not one of us can stand against spiritual forces of evil in our own strength. Not even for a moment, he says. Not even for a moment. John Weldon says, man, as a fallen creature, does not have the necessary equipment or ability to sort out demonic matters. Take that into your conversations about what happened last week at Uvalde, Texas. Man as a fallen creature does not have the necessary equipment or ability to sort out demonic matters. But man, redeemed by the free will choice of God, does have the ability to stand against Satan, doesn't he? Only through God's salvation of us can we not only see the spiritual warfare battlefield in which this war is raging, moreover, we are enabled by God to stand against it. You're in Acts chapter 26, 
Look at verse 14 with me, where Paul, who is Saul, and Paul is relating the story of God's salvation of him. Saul being his Hebrew name, Paul being his Greek name. Notice Paul does not say in this text, as he relates his salvation to King Agrippa, notice he does not say, I chose to follow Jesus. I received Jesus into my heart. I accepted Jesus as Lord. How does Paul say his salvation happened and why? Well, let's read the account as he tells King Agrippa while he's in Roman imprisonment. Read that together with me now. Paul says, there was a voice saying to me, verse 26, 14, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Friends, as you're reading that, this is Paul's testimony. This is the gospel. You know, brothers and sisters, if there's someone here that came this morning and you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, read this text over again. This is the gospel. All of us are born in the dominion of Satan. That's where you were born, in the dominion of Satan. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the ability to steal your soul out of that bondage. And think about that bondage for a moment. This is bondage in which you were satisfied to live and ultimately to die and face eternal hell. You were satisfied in that. But Jesus has the ability to snatch you and rescue you out of that, regardless of what life you've lived and how many sins you've committed. God is the one who says no to you and your continued sinfulness and transgressions. He redeems. He adopts because he has elected and predestined. I don't know that you can stop that. I'm speaking about salvation and I'm telling you the gospel. The gospel of God is this. You're a sinner. You require salvation. You do not have the ability in yourself to save yourself. God saves. Christ died to pay for sinners. And the question for you is, is Christ your Savior? If you are saved, you would ask every day, why me? Why did you choose me? Why did you adopt me? Why did you redeem me out of my slavery to sin? Why did you, God, pull me out of my darkness into your marvelous light? Because it could never be the case that I chose to leave that darkness and walk into light. You had to be snatched out of darkness and placed into light. And that's exactly the salvation that we've received. And everyone who's received that looks at that and says, why me? Once saved, you recognize this love relationship that you have with this incredible Savior. 
and you engage in the spiritual warfare that God selected and elected for you to fight on his team. I, th I think about the joy that it would be for any one of us to think that, that you're gifted enough or talented enough to be snatched and pulled up to play for the Los Angeles Kings hockey team. That's the beauty of salvation, though. It doesn't require for you to have any ability at all. In fact, it works just the opposite way. God calls us the weak ones, the broken ones, the worthless ones onto his team. And he's called you onto his team. And you see this love relationship and you say, whatever you want, Lord, whatever you want, that's for me. I will fight that battle. He gave you the jersey. You didn't claim the jersey. He gave it to you. And now he's telling you, wear it. Stand in it. Fight in this jersey. Which means you must know the size of the supernatural struggle that you face, which includes Satan and rulers and authority and cosmo craters and spiritual forces of wickedness. Their collective evil, brothers and sisters, is all around us. Consider that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has not only been a den for robbers, thieves, liars, but even in our own generation and for several generations, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has become a playground for child predators. Let me tell you what I mean. You, you all are familiar and aware with the multi-generational evil of the sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic system because it's known far and wide. But that's an apostate church. Our history goes back through that church, but that church has been apostate for hundreds of years. What about, however, what about something that's maybe more close to us? somewhere that's more tangible. What about our friends in the Southern Baptist Convention? They've been withholding a list of over 700 sexual abusers. These men are pastors, men in leadership positions in their churches, from 2000 to 2019, 19 years, and they just released the names of these men last Thursday. That's outrageous. The independent firm Guidepost Solutions reported how the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee mishandled allegations of sex abuse, stonewalled numerous survivors, and prioritized protecting the Southern Baptist Convention from liability. And as if it wasn't enough, spiritual warfare and wickedness to struggle against, our Southern Baptist brothers have chosen more things to struggle against, opening themselves up to all the manner of evil of the anti-gospel that is social justice and critical race theory. These are social cancers that are eating away at the evangelical church in America. Because these two cancers, social justice and critical race theory, they embrace evil conversations about race, about the color of people's skin, white, black, red, brown, as if we are somehow made more or less in the image of God because of the color of our skin. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ knows two colors, and I want to share the colors with you as we sang about them earlier. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ knows the color white, like the white of snow, which covers our sins. That's your sins, white as snow, because of the crimson red blood of Jesus Christ. Community Bible Church is not friendly to race-baiting, people-hating, anti-gospel, critical race theory, or social justice, which are both void of repentance 
and forgiveness. And if you love Jesus Christ and his gospel of salvation available to all men, regardless of where you've come from and who you are, if you're for that gospel, you are welcome here at Community Bible Church. You see, it is man who looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says. Demons have taught men to observe, highlight, and divide men based on skin color, which is pure evil. James Montgomery Boyce says, the methods of Satan and his minions are known well to us. They attack new Christians, afflict, afflicted Christians, Christians who suffer from pain. They attack successful Christians, capturing and captivating them in their pride. They attack idle Christians, the ones who are sitting at home playing video games. They attack isolated Christians, the Lone Ranger Christians. And they attack dying Christians, taking it right to the deathbed, making you undermine God and thinking that he's not caring for you in your suffering. Satan and his demons come as friends, like in the Garden of Eden. Just here to help, just here to help, Genesis 3. They come as angels of light, but they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are roaring lions ready to pounce on evil or on easy prey. How can the church survive such evil, which is already so deep inside even the church? How can we as believers stand against such cunning schemes and evil of Satan and his minions? Well, first, you have to see it. You have to study it. You have to know that this spiritual warfare is happening around you. Second, you have to make adequate preparations for this battle. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 16, man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel 17 and talk about David. On this day, May 29, 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgay reached the summit of Mount Everest. I want you to think about that accomplishment with me for just a minute. Summiting Mount Everest. Consider all the enemies that they faced to reach the top of the world at 29,029 feet vertical. For contrast for you, when you step out of the parking lot and you see Mount Spokane, that's 5,887 feet. It's one-fifth the size of the summit of Mount Everest. These men had considerable enemies that they would face, challenges to overcome. The length and elevation gain of the hike is one thing. The terrain that they would cover, incredibly dangerous. The crevasses and numerous places where you could fall to your death. The freezing cold temperatures, the oxygen deprivation, altitude sickness, and brutal, brutal weather, just to name a few. Now, brothers and sisters, think about this. If men can find the resources, achieve the knowledge, acquire the time and the energy to struggle with Mount Everest and win that battle, how much more capable then are Christians at wrestling with Satan and his demons? Our Lord has made known the size of the supernatural struggle to us and told us to lean on his strength, having provided for us his own spiritual armor that we can put on to win this fight. It brings us to point number two in your notes. The fourth of four spiritual victory essentials is point number four in your notes, the scope of our obedient stand. The scope of our obedient stand. You're in 1 Samuel 17, where David was preparing to fight Goliath. Very familiar story to all of us. And notice the Bible does not report 
on the skin color of Goliath, but it does tell us that he was mouthing off to the Israelites and taunting the armies of the living God in chapter 17, verse 26. This did not sit well with David, not at all, not at all. And so he ultimately would report to King Saul. Look at chapter 17, verse 32, where Samuel reports that David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. David replies that God has helped him to kill both a lion and a bear. Personal stories of God's faithfulness to strengthen him for battle. And at 17, verse 37, we read, And David said, The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And David, Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried, uh, and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And so David said to Saul, I cannot go with, the, with these, for I have not tested these. David took them off. He took his stick in his hand, chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached Goliath the Philistine. Now, you have to ask yourself the question as you read this text. What's the deal with David's death wish? Who would go into battle without preparation? A helmet, maybe? Why did David ditch the armor of King Saul? Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6.13. <clears throat> why? Why ditch the armor? James Montgomery Boyce tells us why David had no need of Saul's armor. He says this, quote, David went out to that battle in God's armor. For if ever a man was clothed in God's truth, God's righteousness, God's gospel, God's peace, God's faith, and God's salvation, it was David. How did righteousness, salvation, and faithfulness work out for David as the armor that he wore in this battle with Goliath? How did that work out for him? Well, you know the end of the story. David kills Goliath with one smooth stone, striking him right in the temple, right in the forehead, right between his eyes. The Lord was David's strength, and he wore the righteousness of the Lord like armor on his body. It seems to be the same armor that the Lord himself wears as described by Isaiah. Let me read Isaiah to you, Isaiah 11:5, where the prophet says, Also righteousness will be the belt around the Lord's loins, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. Again, Isaiah in chapter 59, verse 17, Isaiah says that the Lord put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Now, Paul does not quote Isaiah exactly in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. However, G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson, they explain that virtually all biblical scholars agree that some connection exists between the figurative armor of God described in the Old Testament text of Isaiah and the armor that Paul exhorts his readers to put on in chapter 6, verse 11, to take up in chapter 6, verse 13, and to take in chapter 6, verse 17. 
David effectively did exactly what Paul describes in our text today, in Ephesians 6.13. David took up the armor of God. He resisted evil in the person of Goliath. He did everything that he personally needed to do, and he stood victoriously over Goliath's dead body and cut off his head with his own sword. This is the full scope of an obedient stand. This is the battle plan for spiritual warfare victory. We even see it in David. We read here in the text in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, this battle plan, the full scope of an obedient stand, takes this shape. Read it with me. Verse 13, Paul says in concluding his thoughts here, before he launches into the particulars of the armor of God, he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Having explained the full nature, the size, and the strength of our supreme enemy, Satan, and his demons, Paul now presents the Christian soldiers' marching orders for victory in spiritual warfare. What must we do for spiritual victory? How do we perform? How do we participate? What requires our obedience? What is the scope of our participation? Paul is looking at our obedience to four spiritual warfare expectations. Let's walk through these four spiritual warfare expectations in the text. First, Paul expects all believers to take up the full armor of God. Take up is the Greek word analambano, which means to take to oneself, to assume onto oneself, to take up in order to use. Its Old Testament counterpart would be the word nasha, which means to lift, to take up, to carry. The armor of God is our burden to put on and carry in this life. This is your obedience to God, to take up, to lift, to carry the armor of God. What does it require? To take up and lift and carry the armor of God requires that you die to yourself, that you live for Christ and for his righteousness Because putting on the armor, it takes your time away from you, Christian. It takes your time. How many of you woke up and read your Bible every day this last week? That's putting on your spiritual armor. It takes your time away from you. What did you do instead of reading your Bible every day? You did something different. Some of you sinners sat there in the morning and drank your coffee. I know it. Others of you took off to engage in physical fitness. Others of you, it was right to work because work, 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 that's the most important. But you're in a spiritual war. And what's required is to put on the spiritual armor and it takes your time. What were you doing yesterday? Were you putting on the armor of God or were you engaged in entertainment? Sloth, lust, Were you engaged in the boastful pride of life yesterday? Puritan William Gurnall says, In heaven we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory. Amen. But for now, spiritual armor is to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Jesus Christ. James Boyce says the wonderful thing about this, as you will see if you avail yourself of it, is that the armor of God is perfectly suited to you. He says, when we put on, or when we put it on, we find that it is just what we needed. 
it kind of reminds you of the easy yoke and the light burden that Christ says when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Kind of reminds you of that. You must make time to take up the armor of God. What is the armor of God? You see the armor of God there in your text in chapter 6, verse 14 through 17. Truth around your loins, that's around your midsection. Righteousness across your chest. The gospel of peace covering your feet. Faith as a shield. Salvation as your helmet. The word of God as your sword. Now these are defensive and offensive weapons that are required for your spiritual warfare. And it comes to this. It comes to this. What is your joy in this life? Is your greatest joy the pursuits and cares of this world, the entertainment, the lusts of your flesh, the desire for vacations, the desire for money, the desire for toys, new houses? What is your desire? Is your greatest desire slavery to Christ? taking up the full armor of God. Well, if so, you're responsible to put on the armor of God because we see second in our spiritual warfare expectations, you are expected by Paul as a Christian to be able to resist in the evil day. Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter 5.8 as we think about the expectation to resist in the evil day. Resist here is the Greek word Antihistamine. It sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? It's, it? We get the English word antihistamine from this word, antihistamine, which is important at this particular season when a lot of us are facing allergens from tree pollen. Antihistamines block our body's natural response, helping us resist the temptation to sneeze. And so too, Bible reading will increase the content of truth and righteousness and peace in your heart and mind, giving you the ability to resist the schemes of Satan and his demons and your own sinful thoughts and patterns. You need your Bible. You need prayer. You need people praying for you, which is why you need community group, which is why you need church on Sunday so that you actually can resist the devil, resist your own temptations, your own failings, your own lusts, your own desires that you know are sinful. Your conscience tells you every day the things that you're doing wrong. I just gave you the list of things that you need to do what is right. So you have to engage those. You're turning to 1 Peter 5.8. We're talking about antihistamines. What is the evil day in our text? I'm, I'm talking back about our chapter in Ephesians 6. You can stay at 1 Peter 5.8. I want to talk about the evil day for a second. Just so we have clarity on the evil day. The evil day is not a day that's far, far off in the future in our text. The evil day is not far, far off in the future. The evil day is today. And any day that standing and resisting the devil is required in our Christian journey. John Calvin says, by this expression, evil day, Paul rouses the Ephesians from security. He bids them prepare themselves for hard, painful, dangerous conflicts. And at the same time, he animates them with the hope of victory in this, con in this comment. He says, for amidst the greatest dangers, there will be safety for believers. Okay, you're in 1 Peter 5.8, where Peter tells his Christian audience, you Christians, verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Resist Satan. That's expected of you as a Christian. Don't show up for counseling in my office with me over the course of the week and tell me that you cannot resist satanic attack. Don't tell me that. You would say that to me, and I would say, let's go back to the other question. Are you a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, you can, you must resist satanic attack. Resisting is required for you to prove your faith to yourself, to prove your faith to me and everybody else who's sitting with you in church, your brothers and sisters. Turn back in your Bible to Ephesians 6.13. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is a free gift of God. It's the greatest gift that you've ever been given. You know, you realize this, that in your salvation, you are more changed now than you'll be once you die. When you die, you just dump the physical body. You'll you'll get a new one later. The, The biggest change in you has already happened in your salvation. Is that a weak salvation that's been applied to you? No, it's a salvation that's a strong, strong salvation. It's a salvation that has expectations even of your effort, which includes our third spiritual warfare expectation. You are expected in chapter 6, verse 13, to do everything. The text literally says, and having done everything, which is to say, when you have done everything that you are personally responsible before God to do, when you have done obedience to God's commands as you are required. The doing of Ephesians 6.13 comes from the Greek verb katargazomai, which means to achieve, to accomplish, to conquer, to defeat, or to do. And when I read this verb, it's just screaming at me. This is obedience. I need to do obedience. Paul is calling on us to do obedience. James says in James 1.3 that tested faith achieves Tested faith accomplishes and produces endurance. William Barclay says that katargazomai always has the idea of bringing to completion, to carry to perfect conclusion. Well, turning your Bibles as we speak about perfect conclusion, turning your Bibles to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Let's talk about how we get to perfect conclusion. Let's talk about how we do obedience before God. The question for you would be, how well are you doing everything in your Christian life? What grade would you give yourself on obedience to Paul's commands and expectations? Have you figured out what it means to do everything? Regardless of your answer, I don't ever want you to forget Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 in regard to your obedience and doing everything. Paul tells the Philippians, he says in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now even much more in my absence, He tells them, you Philippians, you Christians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's you. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that's the beauty of a Christian life in that verse. Do you see that? We are fully engaged and responsible to God and we are never alone. We're never forsaken. Who is doing everything? Is it you? Is it God? This is like Thanksgiving, people. This is like when you're talking about pumpkin pie or vanilla ice cream. Is it you or is it God? What's the answer? Yes. 
Yes. The answer is yes. Ultimately, we do everything because we are working obediently together with our God who lives inside of us. Turn back to Ephesians 6, verse 13. So much is God at work within us. Paul fully expects that we will stand. We will stand. We see this as a fourth expectation of our spiritual warfare. Verse 13, stand firm. This is the same Greek word as antihistamine without the anti. Histami. It means to stand fast, to be firm, to be permanent, to endure. It's used four times in this context in chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. You, you think using this, this root, this histemi, you think using this root, stand firm, you think it would be important to Paul. Oh, it is. Stand firm expects spiritual warfare. The command tells you not to be frightened, but to prepare for a fight. Stand firm tells you to stand with your shoulders up, tall and proud, not drooping or slouching. It tells you to have confidence and have your whole heart in the fight. Stand firm tells you to take a position of readiness and be on the alert. It means never give in to the slightest thought of retreat. Stand firm says to you, Christian, it says, you've come this far in your spiritual journey. Don't retreat one foot in the face of Satan and his demons. Hold your spiritual ground. Do not retreat. Stand and fight. That's what this verse says. You will not stand except that you follow these four spiritual warfare expectations found in this verse, in chapter 6, verse 13. Take up the armor of God. Resist. Do everything in your power. Stand firm. And as we conclude our time, I would just ask you, what causes you to not stand firm? What is your vice? What is your sinful temptation in this life? What are those patterns and habits of behavior that cause you to lose the spiritual war that you know you're engaged in? What are those things that are burdening your conscience? What are those things for which you came in and maybe you sought someone today to confide in, to ask for help? What are those vices? Is it pornography? Is it alcohol? Is it collecting money at work? Are you a workaholic? Is it the pleasure of vacations and overspending on vacation? I guess those people aren't here. When were you last tempted by Satan and his demons? When were you last tempted by Satan and his demons? Did you master over your own thoughts with God's help? for his glory. When was the last time? Was it this morning? Was it this morning when you got up and you thought about pouring another cup of coffee? Was it right there? Did you stand firm? Spiritual warfare is raging all around us for those who are called, saved, adopted by God. We abide in his strength. To use another metaphor, he is the vine, we are the branches. All our needs for spiritual victory have been supplied for us at the moment of our salvation. Nothing, nothing is missing in this perfect salvation that God has gifted to you. Nothing's missing, except for this, 
our obedience to his commands, which is our greatest good and his source of great glory. Paul has shown us the scope of our obedience required to stand. He gave the battle plan, and Paul fully explains the size of the supernatural struggle in which we are engaged. Our battle with Satan on earth is the natural extension of his battle with God in heaven. Our battle here is a proxy war, you could say. God is so powerful, he is defeating Satan here on earth through us. Can't you see that? God's glory is his Holy Spirit helping us to resist Satan right now in this life. This is a proxy war. Why fight Satan in heaven when God can have Satan defeated on earth through weaklings, wimps like us? Now, someone might say, yeah, it's just like the proxy war that America is fighting against Russia in the Ukraine. And yeah, it's a little bit like that, but I wouldn't say that the Ukrainians have, have proven to be weak. They've proven the opposite of that. Brothers and sisters, spiritually, we were not just weak when we received this calling, when we received this salvation. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We were sons of Satan, and still God is able in adopting us that through us, he will defeat Satan even through us. How blessed are we to be called into this fight, to walk with God and to walk with each other, to fight Satan and to stand confidently in victory. Let me leave you with an encouragement from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who says this. He says, there is nothing quick and ready-made about our spiritual warfare. There is no discharge in this war. While you and I are alive in this world, the devil will be there with all his evil and malignity and he will fight us to the end. He will fight us to our deathbed. Is this hopeless, he asks? It is the reverse. It is glorious. We are given the privilege of following in our Lord and Master's footsteps. Are you ready for the battle? Are you on the alert? Are you on your feet? Are you just indulging your weaknesses and whims and fancies and pitying yourself and grumbling and complaining about this and that problem or situation? Rise up. Shake them off. Stand on your feet and be a man. Realize that you are a member of this mighty regiment of God, fighting the battle of our Lord and destined to enjoy the glorious fruits of victory throughout the countless ages of eternity. Amen. Father in heaven, what a delight to know that we are no longer sons of Satan, but you have called us out of that darkness and into your marvelous light in which we stand. And we praise you for this. We honor you for so great a salvation. Let us honor you all the days of our life, giving you the obedience that is due to you as your creatures whom you have redeemed. Amen.